Let's begin with prayer. Father, I just ask that you would take these thoughts and help us not just to understand with our mind, but help us to understand and grasp this with our spirit, by your spirit. As you um, take these words and thoughts that you've prepared, I believe in my heart. God, help us to see you and ourselves in a new way, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last July, as uh, my wife and I went with our youngest daughter uh, to help her move into her Henderson, Nevada, for her grad PA program, a physician assistant school that she'd be participating in, we decided to take the scenic route. And sorry to say for you Heartland America people, that is not the Nebraska route. We went through South Dakota, Waldrug, Joel Bowers, our worship pastor's mint farm where he came from, um, hometown, and then through Utah and the mountains and the Rockies and then into Nevada, Henderson, which was really fun. And on the way, we drove through Walnut Grove, Minnesota, and I saw the brown sign. And you may be wondering, what's the brown sign? Brown signs are those kind of things like magnets that make me want to stop. Now, that may not be true for all of you, but it's those historic markers. Anybody in your family have that? I mean, it's like an adventure behind that sign somehow. And some of you know what that's like, and my wife is kind of like, let's not, and let's, and I said, just be a few minutes. And so we drive by there, and, uh, and it's, it's the home of the famous frontier storyteller, Laura Ingalls Wilder of Little House on the Prairie fame. I thought, well, that'd be kind of cool to see. And as one enthusiastic fan writes about this, if you were ever a fan of or watched Little House on the Prairie, you have to, you have to go to Walnut Grove in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota. Well, let me just tell you, you really don't. You don't really have to. Okay, it, maybe I'm not a fan of it as much. I didn't watch a lot of Little House on the Prairie. I didn't read a lot of her stories. But I, I'm not really here to talk about brown signs and historic sites, uh, but really want to talk about the biblical concept of rest. And there's all sorts of ideas around this idea of, of rest and this whole series on lighten up. What does God mean for you to understand and enjoy Sabbath rest? Well, the reason I bring up Laura Ingalls Wilder is because she reflects a fairly commonly held understanding of what her generation, late 1800s, early 1900s, understood about Sabbath rest. She writes in her little house on the prairie books about her family's dedication, I mean dedication, to keeping the Sabbath day holy. The emphasis was, was on doing no work, really no even physical activity in many ways. This was a day different from every other day of the week, Monday through Saturday. You took the day off and you rested from your normal routine. And you didn't do anything unless it was essential or necessary. And in an article on August 20th, 1920, as Laura kind of looks back and writes about being depressed and feeling unwilling to help with chores, she was feeling that way that day. She says, until... She remembered the Bible lessons from childhood. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, Exodus 29. And then she says, I felt happy and free from any compulsion to do any chores expected of her. Because God said rest don't work. And she was determined not to do any work in any chores. 
I asked my wife, Grace, we've talked about this from time to time, about what it was like to be in northern Minnesota in Thief River Falls, you know, way up by the border, growing up on a farm, a, a dairy farm. What was, what was Sabbath rest like? And it was this idea that you could milk the cows, you could feed the livestock, but that was pretty much it. That was essential and necessary. And the rest of the day was different. You would go to church and you would have a different kind of special meal and you would visit with family. Well, you see, from our Puritan ancestors, a group of people that goes all the way back to the 1500s when the Reformation was sweeping all through Europe and specifically in England, there was a group of people eventually who came to be known as the Puritans and their whole desire was to purify the church from its corruption. And one of the things they really dealt with was Sabbath rest. They were going to purify that day. And what much of what our American church and culture understands and has understood around Sabbath rest comes from this Puritan understanding. I mean, I grew up with this Puritan idea and experienced it. I think as many of you who are my age or older would be able to relate to. Sunday was a holy day. It was really different and unique from every other day in the week. I remember you actually prepared for it. Anybody remember this? You would have to take a, as a kid, I'd have to take a bath whether I needed one or not. And, and I remember thinking always that I want my mom to give me the bath because my dad, he was just, he was never good at anything. Like, and he would just scrub and you'd just be like knocked around and everything. And I remember one time, I was gonna, I'll just tell the story. Anyway, one time he's scrubbing away my ear till it hurts and he yells, Carol, which was his call. And he says, I can't, come here, I can't get this dirt off. And my mom comes over and she looks and it's a big freckle on my ear. And she goes, that's a freckle. I mean, we were going to get prepared and really pure and clean. You dressed up for it. My mom would lay out on, on Saturday night our Sunday best. And I'd wear this little suit and a white shirt. And yeah, that was me getting ready on a Sunday. And I said, I had another shot of my, my brother and, and I, and, and we were in little suits with little hats on, too. I mean, you dressed up for it. You, you were going to be your best. You were clean. You were pure, at least physically, and you were dressed up to your best. A typical Sunday would go something like this. Your, your day would be first spent in Sunday school. I'm talking this from a kid's standpoint right now. And you go to the Sunday school class, and then after the Sunday school class, you go to morning church service where I remember getting pinched just trying to be sitting still with my mom, and, my, and finally she'd separate us as brothers, and she had this great way of sitting like this and pinching us. It, was, it hurts so bad. Anyway, um, eating was so was essential, so it was okay for mom to make lunch, so that was good. Um, and the afternoon was, was spent kind of in quietness, and, and, and this wasn't so much in our house, but in some houses, the whole idea, and, and Laura Ingle Wilder will tell you that it was about Bible reflection, and you would sit and read. I remember there's no baseball or football or basketball or hockey or any kind of what I call fun, strenuous play. Sunday afternoon could mean visiting with family and friends. Some of you remember that. Or it meant a Sunday afternoon drive. Anybody ever go on a Sunday afternoon drive? Yeah, and my parents would do that, and we'd be, I think we were probably about seven and five, or some maybe eight and six, and we would drive around Lake Minnetonka, and I now realize why. It wasn't because it was such a nice sight to see, it was they were trying to get us to fall asleep, I think. <laughs> and then, and, and, and what would happen is that we'd come back, and, and after a quick dinner, 
it was back to church for an evening service. And that evening service would go to a certain point, and after that there would be a fellowship dessert. Anybody remember those? It's where I, I learned how good homemade pies could be. And I learned something that was just really good that I don't get hardly ever, and that's rice pudding with custard and lemon meringue. And it, it, oh, it was good. Anyway, um, it was kind of the sugar high before you go to bed. Anyway. But I saw that change in the 70s. I remember my dad saying yes to letting us play baseball with a bunch of my church friends. And around that time, also in the 70s, I remember there was a commercial on TV Monday through Saturday. They didn't play it on Sunday, but they were kind of using it in a marketing fashion because they would talk about their store. And then at the end of it, it would always end with this tagline, we're closed on Sundays to worship God. Hey, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about this and I was asking Joel Bowers, who's just a few years younger than me, our worship pastor. And uh, I was just thinking if he would, you know, what his experience was and what he remembered about um, Sabbath rest. And, and I said, you know, I, there was a time when no stores were open on Sundays and very few restaurants. Anybody remember that? And he, he looked at me with this blank stare. So I knew he was a little bit younger than what I thought. You know, they were all Chick-fil-A's in a sense. Closed on Sunday. Anybody recall Blue Laws? You know, Blue Laws, they were, they were created to enforce strict moral religious standards, and they came from the early years of the colony of Connecticut. A blue law, quote, is a type of law designed to restrict or ban some or all Sunday shopping. The U.S. Supreme Court have held blue laws as constitutional numerous times. Now they have been repealed throughout the United States, although many states still ban the sale of alcohol or cars on Sunday. It's kind of a vestige of our concept of Sabbath rest. See, rest consisted really of sitting still, being quiet, being reflective, being contemplative, giving time to focus your complete worship on God. It was this time of stillness and quiet and being contemplative that was everything a kid wasn't. It wasn't a day built for kids in my mind. I remember thinking it felt much more like punishment. I figured that Saturday was my day. That was kids' day, and for some reason, parents got Sundays. It was a deal God made, I guess. Rest was more about restrictions and what you can't do than about a freedom of what you could do. And as I grew older, I would sometimes visit friends' house, and I began to realize even some of the adults weren't too crazy about some of the restrictions And one thing, though, a lot of people did do on Sabbath rest day was take naps. Anybody recall that? You took naps. Sunday in that day for many was truly a day of rest. It was kind of a ritual. Now, I'm not putting all that down. There's a lot of good things in that. But I'm just sharing with you kind of my perspective as I saw it as a kid and and, and it looked and what it looked like. In my opinion, somewhere along the line, someone missed what Jesus said when he was questioned about praying, about his, what he would play loose and fast with the Sabbath blue laws. If you look at Matthew in, 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 in chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, there's two occasions where you have the Sabbath that, that is 
is the topic of conversation by Matthew and recorded by other gospel writers. And as you look at the first story, the first story you see, it tells us that Jesus at that time was going through the grain fields on the Sabbath and he and his followers, his disciples were picking grain. And as he was doing it, they were look the the religious um, police of the day. The Pharisees saw this. They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. They're breaking some restrictions. And Jesus went on to justify why they could do it. And then you go a little bit later in the story. It's another story of the Sabbath. And Jesus is before these people in the synagogue. They're actually worshiping. And in that worship, he actually heals someone. And he is caught red-handed breaking blue laws because you don't work because healing was work. And, and Mark makes this comment that I think is really interesting that helps inform some of this. He says in his account, the Sabbath was made for man. This Sabbath rest was made for you. And the Sabbath, in that sense, man not was, was not made for the Sabbath rest. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. There's a sense where he is basically saying, I make the rules. I determine what is blue and what isn't. And in a sense, he's saying Jesus made um, Jesus was saying God made the Sabbath for us to enjoy, not to be a day of bondage and burden. So what does that mean? What does God intend for this day to look like? What does he intend rest for you with regard to this day called Sunday? And to understand, I think what God intends, you have to go back to the beginning. And in the beginning of Genesis, you begin to start to see what I think is the heart of it and the implications of it. It says in in Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, particularly those three verses in chapter um, 2, verses 1 through 3, it tells you about the Sabbath. But what you have to understand is what's going on in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, you get this picture of God working like crazy. He's busy. He's creating, he's forming, he's developing, he's separating, he's placing everything where it should be. And he finishes one project and he gets done with that project. He takes a breath and he looks at it and he goes, wow, this is good. And then he goes on to another project and he gets back to work. He tirelessly makes it, it forms it and separates it and does what needs to be done. He stops momentarily again and he says, wow, that is good. And again and again, God does this until he finally creates Adam. You have to understand, Adam was just one being at that time. That's mankind, both male and female. Kind of the spitting, or I'd almost say splitting image of God himself. Um, Kind of a little joke. Anyway, um, real little joke. Uh, And this time he looks and he goes, wow, this is really good. And exhausted and worn out from all his work and face it. It really does take a lot of energy to create a universe. Anybody tried it? And some even think now there's multiverses. We read this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, these words. It almost appears like an afterthought after creating mankind. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Again, idea of unique, not moral goodness, but unique, different. Because on it, he rested from all his work of creating that he had done. And then as I read that, you kind of go, well, maybe that's the way it was. The Puritans had it right. They were, they were right. God rested. In fact, it's this idea for years. I always thought that what happened at the end of day six and when God came to day seven, he was so worn out, he was so tired, he just said, you know, it's time to take a nap. 
Is that the way you've understood it? That's one aspect that many understand. And so the whole idea is that you don't do anything of work. God sits back in a sense in his easy chair. He looks at all that he's created. He contemplates, reflects upon all his goodness. And he's just, as we are all, when you go out and you see a mountain or you look at the ocean or you look at a beautiful um, span of wheat or whatever it might be, and you just go, wow. And you reflect, no, that's good. But I ask you, is that really what Genesis 2, 1 through 3 is saying? I'm almost saddened and sometimes when I, when I look at the way the, the chapters and verses are, are put down in Scripture, because in some ways I think Genesis 2, 1 through 3 give you a false sense of what happens. I believe the whole thing goes through Genesis 2, verse 3, and it ends there. And what you end with is not this afterthought, but you end with this incredible sense of climax. Because you have to ask yourself, what were the people of Israel understanding? What were the cultures around that day understanding when this was written? And here I just want to share with you um, in reading some of the things from John H. Walton and another professor of mine back at Trinity Seminary, Gordon Wenham, has been something that's informed me and it's just become really clear to me over the last number, last year, last probably number of months. And it's been the book called The Lost World of Genesis 1. This Wheaton College professor Walton says this, In the traditional view that Genesis 1 is an account of material origins, day 7, if it's just about creating material things, is mystifying. It appears to be nothing more than an afterthought with theological concerns about Israelites observing the Sabbath, an appendix, a postscript, a tack-on. In contrast, a reader from the ancient world would know immediately that what was going on and would recognize the role of day seven. Without hesitation, an ancient reader would conclude that this is a temple text and that day seven is one of the most important of all the days here. Day seven is in no way afterthought. It's the climax of all that is happening. It's a temple kind of text. And, and if you, I can't have, I don't have time to go into this, but you can see if, if, if scholars will show you the temple and the tabernacle contain all kinds of imagery of the Garden of Eden. So how could reactions be so different? Why could you have such different views? The difference is this piece of information that everyone knew in the ancient world and to which most modern readers are, I believe, totally oblivious. In the ancient world, modern readers would understand that deity rests in a temple and only a temple. And this is what temples in that day were built for. God had just created the universe, and the universe was, in a sense, his temple. And he was, in a sense, making this point that he was moving into his temple. And that's where you get the idea of the earth and this being his footstool. This was a huge and important thing, that God, who had created all this, now was entering his temple. And here's the key. What does divine rest mean? What does it entail? Most of us think of rest as disengagement from cares, worries, and the task of life, right? What comes to mind usually is sleeping or what I've said, taking an afternoon nap after just hard work. But in the ancient world, rest is what results when a crisis has been resolved or when stability has been achieved. When things, in a sense, have settled down. And the consequence is that once again, normal routines can be established and enjoyed. The idea is more of this. It's an engagement without obstacles than a disengagement from responsibilities. You get that? 
You've got to stay with me here for a second. I realize this you got to kind of work. I'll get to some illustrations of it in a moment. If you, if you understand this, this disengagement is not that you're taking a nap, but it's basically some things have been completed, some chaos, some things that hadn't been working right are now functioning the way they should. And because they're functioning the way they should, now there's a new state where you begin to operate what's been put together almost in a sense. And so if you look in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, there's a number of translations. They all have this little footnote to the word rest. The word sabbat, from which we get the word Sabbath, has one basic core meaning. It means to cease. It's the idea of ceasing. So if you go to other passages of Scripture, you can go to Joshua chapter 5, verse 12. It says at that time, and it translates it in NIV, the manna stopped. What needed to, you know, was, was an obstacle from them being able to eat had stopped because now they were entering into a promised land and a new state would be there where they would get food. Or you look at Job chapter 32, verse 1. It says that the counselors who were counseling and sharing all this stuff, in, in the NIV says it stopped. They ceased. He's now moving into a new place of understanding and revelation. So semantically, it refers to this, the completion of an activity or a certain activity to which a person has been occupied, been giving themselves to. And it leads into a new state. So that the seventh day is not an afterthought. It's the climatic conclusion to all that's occurred in those seven days. And again, as my seminary professor Gordon Wenham writes, he says the creation of people may be the climax of the six days of work. But it's not the conclusion of the narrative. It is the seventh day that is blessed and sanctified. You see, in a special way, this is blessed and sanctified, which suggests the significance of what happens there. And this is this, that God ceases his work. He has, catch this, he has set up shop, so to speak, and now he moves in to this universe to rule. God is taking up his residence where he will rule and reign through the sixth day mankind And it's exactly what Psalms 132, verses 7 through 8 and 13 and 14 say. If you read it this way, he says, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. You see what he's saying? The Lord has on the seventh day entered the universe and in a very special way to this little group of people called Israel, this little tribe of people in a sense. He's come to them and he said, I'm going to actually rule this earth through this temple here. Not the other temples around it, but through this temple and through the ark and through this place is what I've moved into. And that's why they saw this God is so incredible and so great. God's living with us. It's like he said, I'm going, to, I'm going to rule, I'm going to do all my work right through this place. And so in a sense, he goes on, he says, For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. In a sense, what you find in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is this truth. God disengages from creating. He ceases, in a sense, from the setup tasks, and now he moves into the operations of it. He takes control to sovereignly rule all that he has created. So let me give you a few examples. This will kind of maybe help this kind of set, take place. Here's what's happening in those six days. Here's what happens in the seventh day. It's similar to this. It'd be like if you get a new computer and you spend your time setting it up, placing the equipment in place, connecting the wires, installing the software, all the setup tasks. 
I did that yesterday. We were putting a sling box together so my daughter could watch TV from a remote location. And I did all this work of setting it up. And when you get done setting it up, you may feel tired like taking a nap. But what do you want to do? You want to enjoy it and use it. It's now ready to operate. So you sit into the, the chair that commands this little thing and you begin to use it and enjoy it. That's a picture of what's happening. That's what, the, that's what the mind of the ancient was understanding. God wasn't taking a nap. He was putting himself in a position to rule and to operate all that he had created. Another example would be this in, in a similar way. A temple, they knew this in ancient times, was the place where the deity would rule. That's why you had all these temples. It's, it, it's where the deity would, would find a place, not to rest, but he was ceasing from everything else so that he could rule from that place. And the temple is the residence and then palace of the gods. So here's what I'd liken it to. Liken it to the, the American White House. It's the hub of authority and control, right, for this nation. It's where the work of running the country takes place. When a newly elected president looks forward to taking up his residence in the White House, it is not simply so that he can kick off his shoes and snooze in the Lincoln bedroom, right? It's so he can begin the work of running the country. And in this way, Genesis 2, 1 through 3 would be understood so clearly that God ceases or rests in that sense, like the president ceases from all the work of getting elected to set up, and he moves into the White House to run the country, so all God ceases, so, so also God in this sense ceases from the work of creating, and he enters his temple. The universe is what this picture is. And then in a special way, into the ark, where he rules through Israel. That's the White House over the whole earth. Now, when you understand how, what Scripture intends, it, it gives you an idea because you should be able to understand Scripture. It's like a river. It should flow backwards and make sense, and it should flow forward and make sense, right? And if it isn't, there's something wrong. So now think about it this way. Jesus, you get this idea that Jesus, when he finished his work on the cross, he ascends to what? The throne room in heaven. Because he's so tired, he does what? He takes a nap. No. Do you get the picture? You see, we're, we're told that he goes there to rule and reign in these new temples, yours and my heart. Jesus didn't live his whole life on earth and sacrifice his life just to save you from sins. When, he, when you understand this, that's an aspect of it. That's what he removes the obstacle. Sin is in the way. Your guilt is in the way of God. Jesus comes and does his work. Praise God. He does this. He says, I'm going to take the sin, all the guilt, if you're willing to put it on me and allow me to begin to rule in your heart, I will rule through you. I will begin to create a life you could not imagine. And so you get this picture of Jesus as he says in, 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 in John chapter 19, verse 30, when you, when you see him on the cross, he breathes his last words. He says, it is finished. I completed the work, Father. Now I'm so tired I'm going to take a nap. No, now I'm going up to heaven because no longer are we going to rule in a building. We're going to rule in your heart. You are now the throne room through your heart. And your body and being is the temple of God. That's not stationary that people have to go to. But where you go, everywhere you go, you bring the presence of God. And God is taken up. And the rest is this. 
You don't have to worry about your sin. You don't have to worry about that any longer. God took it on the cross. All you need to do is live in the grace of God and by faith trust in what He's done and live in that and begin to just allow His love to so penetrate your heart. It changes you. That's what deep change we'll be talking about is all about. It's this love of God that begins to so fill you in your heart, the grace and mercy of God, that you, you can't live in a way that would be contrary to Him. Folks, we are the throne rooms, our hearts. Together we are the temple. You individually are, but together in a unique way. We're the temple from which God rules. And through us, He wants to extend everywhere His kingdom, His goodness, His love, His grace. Not to people in Poland and Mongolia alone, but the people you sit next to at work. The people that you stand next to when you're standing on a, on a soccer field. He wants to bring it into your home. He wants to bring it into your own life. He wants to bring it into your marriage. He wants to begin to rule so that you can rest in the very truth of His presence. I'm really pumped up about this. <laughs> it is so true. I, I, just, I so want my character to be like Jesus. I want our character to be like Jesus. If there's mindsets that we've got to let go of, let them go. It's time to quit playing church and time to say, Spirit of God, fill us full. We have a short time where our breath we have on this earth that we can extend the kingdom of God through His Holy Spirit to the throne of our heart, to the temple of our being, to the temple of our collectedness to, change, to impact this world. And that's what I am here to give my life to. And that's what I pray every person who walks through this door is here to give their life to. So what does it mean to rest? I don't think it's about a bunch of rules. What we're called to cease from, the new state we are to enter into, is not a surrender to a bunch of rules. It's a surrender to the rule of God's love in our heart. Always, everywhere. And here's just some practical truths that you should every Sunday be aware of. Because of the fact that Genesis 1 tells us in Genesis 2, 1 through 3 says that God moved into this universe. Do you know what? That God, here's some practical truths. God, every time you come here, God is the master of time. Think about it. Every Sunday when you stop, you give focus to this. Not about what you're not trying to do. You give focus to God being the master of time. Some of you might like Psalm 13. I prayed this for years about certain things. How long, oh Lord, like a kid in the backseat of a car, how long, when are we going to get there? And God's the master of time. He knows exactly when. And He will get to you there on time every time. So if you're in that place, you're going, how long, Lord? God, He's the master of time. And today you set this apart in a special way to focus again on the fact that He can rule through your heart as you surrender yourself to the truth that He is the master of time. God is the founder of order. You're going, my life is full of chaos. I have made, I've had decisions that I've made that have just messed things up and, and, and God, and you're doing things now and God's helping to bring some order. I can tell you, He is the, He is the founder of order. He knows how to take chaos and make something orderly out of it. He did it in Genesis 1. If He can do it with the whole universe, He can do it with your little universe in your life. 
Now, it doesn't mean you don't have to make hard choices. If it's in the area of finance, you'll have to pull back and get some understanding and ask for the grace of God in that. If it's in your marriage, you'll have to ask for the grace of God to come in and bring about real changes that patterns in your own heart where you're maybe living in self-pity or you're causing, you're, you're blaming, whatever. I mean, God will come in and he'll bring order to that if you open your heart to it. And it's not always easy. But I can tell you, he's the founder of order. He's the creator of beauty. You come here and you go, he's the creator of beauty. God has meant for there to be beauty. I, on this past week, and some people have said, oh, this, oh what am I going to say here? Okay. I went to the skin doctor on Wednesday, and she, I call her Dr. Payne, she burned off all kinds of stuff on my face. And uh, she said, you really want me to do this? I know you're preaching Sunday, and it's going to be all over. I go, yeah, big deal. And I looked at the face, and I go, oh. Anyway. God's burned that stuff off because if left be, it would create a lot of disfigurement. God's the creator, and he's the one who brings about beauty in our lives. And it may not all show up here, but there is a day, there is a day when you will be with God forever in heaven. And, the, and you know, if it's a hard of hearing, it's the ability, inability to walk. If it's something that's been disfigured, God is going to recreate it. Amen? Every Sunday, you should come here and go, I got this hard hearing thing. I go, every Sunday, I go, man, just think, today I get to know that someday. God is the supplier of provision. You, you come in every Sunday and you go, oh, man, Lord. It's not about what you can't do. It's about what he's doing for you. He will provide. I won't go any more on that. He will provide. God's the originator of fun. That's how Peter, I'm so grateful for Peter Kapsner and for his truths and teaching. He's just helped me understand things. And he shared about play. God, because he is the one who provides, he's also the one that allows us to have the heart of a kid so he can play. We know dad's taking care of things. So lighten up. His grace is sufficient. And God is the forgiver of your sins. If you're living under the, this voice of guilt and, and you're, you're living under that, it's time to be and to take and look at the cross and say, that's true, and I'm going to believe that always. He's paid for my sins. If you've never opened your heart and given your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and asked Him for your sins, I'm going to invite you to do that right now. Just say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. And I will now, like everybody else here, because we all come to the cross the same on our knees, look at the cross and say, that's the truth. I'm going to live in the truth that he's forgiven me. And now, as it says in Hebrews, rest. And then the last thing is this. God is the ruler of the universe. He's the ruler of the sovereign of all. Ultimately, God is the center of creation, the sovereign over all, the one, the only, the focus of everything who deserves every person and everything's worship. God's Sabbath is not withdrawal from the world and its operations. A kind of my work is done. I'm taking a nap. It's all yours. Now, good luck. Instead, it represents his taking his place at the helm. This is what Israel's observance of the Sabbath is all about. That is what every day when we come on Sundays we do. We come here to rest in the presence that God has entered his throne, the universe. And you are now, in that sense, his footstool, his throne rules in you. Do you believe it? Will you rest? Will you begin to live in that rest? Will you enjoy that rest?